Good evening. Uh, my name is Dodd, so I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the Gospel Book of Matthew and considering the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, today, we're continuing in chapter 25 um, in one of the more cheerful passages of the Bible, if you didn't pick up on that. Um, many of you might remember a playwright named Arthur Miller wrote the play Death of a Salesman. Um, wonderful play. Uh, in 1964, he wrote and produced uh, another play called After the Fall, uh, which was a three-act play that takes place inside of the main character's mind. Uh, main character's name is Quentin. Uh, Quentin's this intellectual, and he's just constantly uh, examining life, his own life, and uh, most specifically kind of his, his romantic choices. But during a moment of... Uh, of deep examination, he just he comes to a conclusion. He says, he says this. For years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart you are, what a good lover you are. Then later on, you prove what a good husband you are, what a good father you are. Finally, you try to prove how wise you are, how powerful you are, how successful you are. But underlying it all, I see now that in all my arguing, there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was, but I knew I would be justified or condemned for what I'd done. There would be a verdict anyway. We do believe how we live matters. What Arthur Miller is saying here, what Quentin is saying here, is that there's a reason that we try to prove that we are good employees, husbands, wives, neighbors, friends, citizens, human beings, or that we've been kind enough or wise enough or maybe more wise than foolish more kind than unkind, that we've given enough, or maybe that we've just given more than we've taken, or that we've loved enough. And we don't just wonder if it's been enough. We functionally live as if our lives have meaning, that our lives are not pointless. We live as though what we do is vitally important. And the Bible says not only does how we live matter now. Matthew's going to tell us that how we live has eternal significance. Now, in the portion of Matthew that we've been looking at, two things have been happening at the same time. Number one, there's been this growing intensity to Jesus and his teaching. Um, and then there's been a growing opposition to Jesus and his teaching. Uh, so in these last chapters, particularly in Matthew 21 through 25, Jesus is talking about the weight of human decision and action. And right as the chief priests are challenging his authority to say such things, he begins to tell them a series of stories. And they're really, really, really interesting. In each of these stories, he likens God to someone different. There's, so there's a, a story where he likens God to a father, to a property owner, to a groom, master of a vineyard, and a king. 
And then he likens uh, humanity to sons, servants, uh, wedding guests, and unmarried brides. And in each story, there's an outcome. There's a verdict where each of these servants is found to be either faithful or unfaithful, obedient or disobedient. And in each parable, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God is like this. And then we come to this passage, and we see that Jesus was using all of these stories as word pictures to set up not just this ultimate story, but rather an ultimate day. Let's look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then dropping down to 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That was a cheerful part I was talking about earlier. It's that part right there. This is quite a scene. Um, There's all this glory. There's all this light. Jesus coming in all of his glory with the angels and all of their glory, sitting down at a glorious throne, the glorious nations pulled forth. This is a significant moment. And what Jesus is telling us in this, because he's telling us this is what's going to happen. Jesus is telling us that history is not just this cycle. It's not cyclical. History is linear. It's a storyline. It's headed somewhere. History is headed to this one day that there will be a last day and it won't, the last day will not be due to nuclear holocaust or environmental vandalism or hordes of zombies. No, Matthew's trying to get us to see that the son of man will one day return to earth as its king and he's gonna bring together all the people who have ever lived and like a shepherd who separates sheep and goats on their way back into the pen, because that's what, that's what happens is when animals are grazing, they graze together, but when they come back in, they're separated into their pen. He's gonna separate every person into one of two groups. Now, just as an aside, just so that we can, just a little bit more of nuance here. Jesus uses sheep and goats to paint a distinct picture for his hearers, and for us. Because sheep were used to describe God's people. That's why he uses sheep here. Because everywhere, everywhere throughout the Bible, the people of God are regularly described of as sheep, that, that we are the, the people of God, are sheep of his pasture. And being on the right was being in the favored place of God. Now goats were associated with sin, 
and were used by Jewish priests for ceremonial sacrifice. So on the Day of Atonement, the big day for the Jewish people where they would come and atone for all of their yearly sins, the priest would bring in two goats into the temple, into that most holy place of sacrifice, and they would offer the goat as a sacrifice on the altar, and then he would take the other goat and he would put his hands on it and transfer the collective sin of the community onto that goat, and then that goat would be led out into the desert. And it was a picture of sin leaving the people, of sin going out and being taken far away from them. It's where we get the term scapegoat. Now Jesus says this is how the world is going to look at the final judgment that one group will be welcomed into a place of eternal delight to an inheritance prepared by God since the foundation of the world for his children. And a second group will be welcomed into a place of eternal punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is asking us to believe that heaven and hell are real and that a judgment day is coming where we will all end up in one group or the other. Now, before we go any further, kind of just pause for for one second. And I want to say to all of you, sojourners, guests, friends, I tried to remember, after reading this passage, I tried to remember the last time that we talked about hell from the pulpit, and I can't remember the last time that we did. I think it's probably been, it's been more, more than four years which is significant because this is a major biblical, major biblical doctrine. But I think it's good to take a moment and just say, hey, this is a, a really heavy text because it's dealing with our lives and eternity. We may struggle with the idea of hell, but I don't think that we struggle with the need for justice. And in God's economy, the two are invariably linked. So it's because of God's fierce love and his commitment to justice that hell exists. It's weighty. So maybe we can breathe here for a moment and then we can keep going. The word judgmental is probably viewed as one of the worst words in our current culture. So as we see this text describing Jesus as king and judge, Maybe, maybe we we're, we're buck against this a little bit. Maybe we'll ask, how can you reconcile the concept of judgment in hell with the idea of a loving God? And it's an understandable objection. It's an understandable question. The idea that God would consign people to hell might seem to many of us unenlightened at best, but barbaric and dangerous at worst. So in all that tension, in all of that, how can we reconcile? We may be tempted to just say, we're not gonna judge. I'm not gonna judge. I don't wanna judge. There isn't a judge. But let me contend with you for a bit on why we need for there to be a judge and why in our hearts I can tell you that we want one. First, let's go back to Quentin. Just as a a recap, this is what he said. I've been living as if I'd be justified or condemned by what I'd done, 
there would be a verdict anyway. I knew this. But here's the rest of his quote. He says this, I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with one's self. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Arthur Miller, the playwright, says this to us. He says, in our fight to let go of the idea of heaven and hell, in our fight against an ultimate judge, or to push away from the traditional idea that God rewards or punishes when we do that, this is what we're left with. Litigation with ourselves that never ends. Over what's right, what's wrong, what's best, what's worst, what is good and what is bad. If there is no judge, then who is to say what is better? Who is to say if you've done enough? Who is to say if you are enough? Without a judge to say what is best or what is wrong, we are left with this, as Quentin says, a lifetime of incessant arguing and debating and weighing and counterpointing back and forth and the knowledge that nothing that we do matters. We're living as if it does. Quentin says, if you take the judge away, I don't know if what I'm living really matters because there's no judge. When there's no judge, we fall into a hell of despair because we never know if we have done enough I don't know if you've done enough. I can't tell you that you have. I can't tell you that you haven't. And we all spend our days in an empty courtroom pleading our case to a judge that isn't there, waiting for a verdict that won't come, and we're left with that. Don't we really want to judge? I think we do. Saying there is no judge, it does, it seems liberating, but it's the worst kind of liberation because it's the liberation from meaning. It is the liberation from significance and the human condition cannot stand that. It becomes slavery. We're enslaved to ourselves, enslaved to one another. So Jesus the judge comes in glory when you think of glory, think of this idea of light. He lights up the world. And without the light that a judge brings to every situation, without that light of presence, without that light of judgment, we only sit in darkness and despair. But if we have a good judge, if we have a good judge, we're freed from darkness and despair because he brings his light of judgment into those dark places And just as an aside, God's wrath and his judgment against what is evil and unjust is absolutely an extension of his love. How can we have a God that judges but is also loving? I can see it in my own life. 
If someone intended to hurt Kimberly, my anger and judgment would come against that person. It is an expression of my love to protect that which is precious to me. My anger against that which would hurt what I love is not a suspension of my love. It's an extension of my love. We don't have to pick a judge or a loving God. He is both. Now, another objection, someone might say it this way. If you believe in a God of judgment, you'll just become an aggressive person. You'll become essentially kind of bloodthirsty, aggressive, someone who punishes other people. That's what we would become as a community if we believed in a God of judgment. We would be an aggressive people. We wouldn't be merciful. But there's one problem with that, and and I'm gonna read something that Maybe many of us have read before, but I think it's always good for us to come back to something like this because when it comes to our commitment or our thought towards wouldn't a judgeless God be better, I think this quote is very helpful. Uh, Miroslav Volf, who, was a, who is a, excuse me, a Croatian theologian, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, and this is what he said about the idea of a God that does not judge and how that applies to violence. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Imagine for a moment speaking to people whose cities and villages have been plundered, burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, and you point to them as you speak, is your point to them as you speak is this we should not retaliate. Why not? What would ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, that the only means of prohibiting, prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The Wolf says that the only way for us to live nonviolently, not to pick up the sword, is to believe in a God of judgment. If there is no God that will repay every evil properly on the last day who will judge every injustice ever known, then the job, the job of of retaliation, that's, that's ours. And when it's our job to address injustice with our own vigilante justice, it turns every single one of us into Batman, which is kind of cool, but when we get sucked into the culture of violence that has our worlds at odds, that has our world at odds, both at a local level and a global level, we become part of what tears our world apart when we take justice into our own hands. But if there is a judge, 
If there is a judge, then no one will get away with anything. Not Bernie Madoff, not the perpetrators of Aleppo, not us. We may not pick up on this point as much if we have not suffered something awful. But let me tell you, if someone kidnapped one of my daughters and there is no judge, what is stopping me from taking that person out? Are you gonna appeal to me by saying, violence doesn't solve anything, Dodds? Oh, you're right. No. No, violence is the only thing that's gonna solve this because there's no judge. Well, if you take the law into your own hands, Dodds, what kind of example is that? This is my daughter. There's no judge. Who is gonna do, who's who's going to repay this evil? I will. And the only way that we put down the sword or the gun is to know that there's a judge that not one person will escape. If you still want the bench to be empty after these examples, I would just say, think about it some more. Maybe, maybe it will land the next time you were, you were really wronged or betrayed or hurt. And if you're like Quentin, I can say that you're living as if there's a judgment day anyway. You're just wondering by which standard you'll be judged. I think we all are. And I think that's what takes us back here to Jesus' words. Remember, Jesus says, I'll, I'll welcome the sheep on my right into inheritance. I'll dismiss the sheep or the goats on my left into eternal punishment. Okay, based on what? Right here. And forgive the hybrid reading of this. I just didn't want to read through 11 verses, so I sort of combined these mirrored, these mirrored scriptures together. Based on what? What are we being judged on? For I was hungry and you gave me food, or you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink, or you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, or you did not welcome me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me, or you did not minister to me. Truly I say to you, as you did or did not do it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it or you did not do it to me. Now at first read, this seems as though this is a salvation by works. And some of us may balk at that. Sorry, faint at that. However, it says in Romans 2, 6 through 8, and John 5, 27 through 30, that God will give everyone according to his works. That those who seek honor and do good will get eternal life, and those who seek self and do evil will receive judgment. But it also says in Romans 3 that no one can be good enough to earn salvation, that everyone indeed falls short. So how do we resolve? How do we square this off? Because there's a tension. I think that Matthew, in Matthew 7, Jesus says something that helps us. He says to his disciples, you will know the quality of of a tree by the quality of the fruit. We'll know if a tree is truly alive by the kind of fruit that it produces. We'll know if a person is truly alive by their works. See, an apple, doesn't give, an apple doesn't give the tree life. The apple indicates that the tree is alive. Just in the same way with us, 
Our work doesn't give us life, but the work that we do indicates the kind of life that's in us. So in our text today, God says he will judge us on the basis of whether we feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, befriend the prisoner, welcome the stranger, visit and comfort the sick. It's very interesting that this list has nothing to do with ability or theological prowess. It has everything to do with kindness. Everything to do with kindness. Perhaps we desire to do something far bigger than this for God to really prove something. And what he asks of us is to be someone who provides for the basic needs of another person. Friendship, food, clothing, a safe place. God knows that our works are a reflection. This is, this is important. God knows that our works are a reflection of what our heart prizes. So Jesus looks at our works in order to find out what our hearts are after. So take a, let's, maybe we can take, just take a moment to say, okay, let's, let's look at our lives. Let's look at our works. What through our works can we see that we are prizing? I know that we can do a fair amount of emotional inventory. I know for a lot of you who are more emotional, it doesn't take you long to get, that, to get at that inventory. Oh, I know how I'm doing emotionally. But, but from a works perspective, from my life, what am I doing with my life? Who am I serving with my life? Looking at our actions and not just the sentimentality that we have for people or the sentimentality that we have for God, but what have we done? What am I living for? Who am I serving? What do my actions reveal about what I value? And this is the litmus test. If your heart is self-directed, self-righteous, self-preserving, your works will be about securing things for you. If your heart is in need of God's grace, secured by his love, humbled by his goodness, your works will be about enjoying God and serving others. God will most certainly judge our deeds, but not just based on the deeds themselves, but our heart behind them. Why did we do the good works that we did? Now, do you see what Jesus is saying when he says, truly I say to you, as you did it or did not do it for the least of these, you did it or did not do it for me? See, Jesus is saying that yes, those good works are for those people, but, but they're all done unto me. Do you see the whole of life is lived before the face of God unto the person of God in Christ? All of it, everything that we do for every person that we do it for is done as if it's unto him, what we do or what we don't do. Our words and deeds will testify to our heart commitment and by Jesus's measurement, we will be shown to be committed to ourselves or committed to King Jesus and God will give to us accordingly. I think C.S. C.S. Lewis said, like, God gives you what you want, 
And by our actions, by our heart, we can tell what do I want. If we don't want God, this day of judgment will ultimately be God saying, here, have what you've always wanted. And for those of us who want God at the at the end of all things, he will say, by your works and by your heart, I'm giving you what you've always wanted, which is me. But this is still very weighty. How can we be freed from what Quentin described earlier? We have two options. Number one, if we get rid of the judge, we ignore justice. If we try to live up to a moral standard to impress the judge, we create oppression because we can't measure up. We want to believe that there will be a judgment day, but that we will pass with flying colors. So we know the judgment day is coming. We're hoping, we're praying to pass with flying colors. But this creates such lifelong anxiety. My dad, uh, who died a, a couple of years ago, he died with his fingers crossed. I hope I've done enough. Agony. Agony. Waiting to see if, what, if who he was was enough. Wandering around in that courtroom. The Bible says there is no, here, the Bible says there is no hope for us if a judgment day doesn't exist because we need it. Because we need to be freed from our self-argumentation by that good judge, but, it, but the Bible also says that there's no hope for us if there is a judgment day because we can't live up to the standard in our motivations and in our deeds. Do you guys feel hopeless yet? I just want to know, I just want to check in with everybody. Do we feel pretty hopeless? Okay, good. The only way that we can be free from this certain death is to know that there is one who faced judgment and hell for us. When you look at chapter 25 in Matthew, actually, in the scripture, it, it doesn't show chapter 26, and in, and in this case, it really needs to. It's on that next page. So let's, let's look at that. Let's turn that page and look at 26, chapter 26, verses one and two. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see what he's saying? That when Jesus was crucified, he became our judgment day. In him, it's like we've already had it. The only way our incessant self-argument can be put to rest is if we know that the judgment has already been passed. It's the only way that we can put down the sword is if we know that God the Father brought it down on his own son. Do you know that this means that now we have the full access of the forgiveness of God? That in Christ we are covered in forgiveness. That in Christ he is not angry with you anymore. That he actually delights in you because he delights in Christ and his work on your behalf. Makes me think of our
of our daughters. We have three daughters. And I delight in them because they're mine. When they disobey, when they rebel, it hurts me. I'm disappointed. But it does not sever our relationship. Nothing could do that. And I'm just a dad. And nothing could... Imagine what is ours in Christ. Imagine his disposition to you in his son. That he does feel when we disobey. He does feel when we rebel. It just doesn't end the relationship. If we can see that the God of the universe took the injustice of our own sin, the injustice of this world, and held his son responsible, then we will live as a people not only able to show mercy and kindness, but eager to show mercy and kindness. Not just to those who love us, but to those who hate us. To those who will never care for us. Because on the cross, both love and justice were carried out. Jesus was the sheep who became the goat. He was the scapegoat who carried away our sins. It was like when he was on the cross and cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken, it means to be abandoned in distress when someone still knows that you're alive. So if we're thinking maybe like a military scene, we, we don't leave anybody behind. Even if they're dead, we're not leaving them behind. And the father said to his son, no, I know that you're alive and I know that you're in distress and I am leaving you. He abandoned his son in the hell of the cross, in the hell of his wrath, so that he could say to you, come, you who are blessed, come and inherit the kingdom. See, Jesus earned the inheritance, he just gave it to us. He endured the hell of his father's abandonment, he descended into hell. So when we think about a God who actually has who actually, who actually will allow people to choose hell, that he said, yeah, but, but I went there first. I allowed that punishment to fall on me first. But because of what he has done, we can finally enjoy this judge, this judge who has become our king, our friend, our savior. So sojourn, we'll end, we'll end here. How do we live this out? We know how we live matters, and we know that Jesus has given us life. Well, number one, the only way that we can even begin to live this out is to rehearse this news over and over again. I know that you're just like me. You need to hear this every five minutes. We must remember that our judgment day was carried out on the one who gave up his life he gave it up to see that we were fed, welcomed, clothed, comforted, and reminding ourselves, reminding one another of this. We were reminding one another of who we are because of what he did for us. And it means that as we work that reality more and more into our hearts, the works of kindness will show up more and more because we won't be able to help it.
so captivated by what's been done for us that we want others to know that. No, I was clothed. No, I was hungry. No, I was thirsty. I don't, I want to push that back in the world because Jesus has pushed that back in my life. Number two, practically speaking for our parishes, it means that every parish gathering is a chance to be completely obedient to this text. Every single gathering. As we welcome strangers, befriend them, share a meal with them, share Christ with them. And it means that every act of service to those who are most in need and to those who we think, I don't think that they're in need. Because Jesus reached out to the rich young ruler who had plenty of money and everything going for him and said, no, you're in need. But he also reached out to the blind man and said, no, you are in need as well. It means that every act of service, in every act of service, we both serve Christ, we both serve Christ, and we find Christ. We serve Christ directly in every person that we care for. Number three, it means that in order to serve someone well, we have to know them and overlap life with them. And so we say that faithful membership at Sojourn looks like this, building relationships, exposing those relationships to the community of faith, and sharing the gospel. Building relationships, get to know the people in front of you, expose those relationships to the community of faith, introduce your friends to your other friends, and share the gospel, share life and truth of Jesus with one another. Four, maybe there are people in your parish who you know are on the fringe. Maybe they're socially awkward. Maybe they're so unlike you it's uncomfortable. Maybe they're a train wreck. Can we be honest for a moment? We're all train wrecks. Don't be fooled. Every single one of us. A little bit of freedom in that. I'm, this, I am a train wreck. Maybe I don't look like it out here, but I'm trying to pretty much prove to everybody that I'm not. But I've got so much going on inside me. So much going on in my head and my heart. But here's the deal. No one was more unlike you than Jesus. And he broke into your life and brought you into his family, perhaps we could brave the discomfort of an awkward relationship as we reflect on what discomfort Jesus endured to get to us. In what ways is, is our, are our lives an offering to God and to others? And finally, this is a text that should have all of us asking this question, what am I after? Whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, atheist, agnostic, what does your heart prize and what does that prize have your, what course does that prize have your life set on? If it's not Jesus, that thing is not your life. It can't be your life. Christ is your life and nothing else is. Let me pray for us. Father, this is, again, just thinking about the last number of years. It's been a long time since we've preached about this doctrine of hell, this doctrine of 
heaven. Specifically, this idea of eternal punishment. Father, I pray that you would help us see your love in this. Lord, for a lot of us, for all of us, this is a text that sits on our hearts. It sits on our souls. Because for many of us, we have people in our lives that we love dearly and we want our heaven to include them. Lord, help us to see that you are the good judge, that you are the loving judge, that you're a better and more loving judge than we could ever be. And I pray that in this, that you would make us through this idea that there is a hell and there will be people who choose it and go there. That we would be a community that is eager to be kind to those in need, to those who are overlooked, to those who are on the fringe. Lord, will you make us by your grace, by what you have done for us, a community so eager to love, to welcome, to feed, Lord, to clothe, to befriend, to comfort and overlap life with people, God, that, that maybe we would never even choose. And then that, and in that, God, we would remember, Lord, how you came to us and clothed us and fed us and welcomed us and comforted us. Lord, I pray that you would make that so real to sojourn that we just can't help but be eager to show mercy because we've known your mercy so well and so deeply. Make us a people who enjoy your mercy and a people who have to share it. Yeah. Father, we love you. We trust you. Please help us. We are, we are lost without you. We ask it all and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.